0: Good evening. It's good to be with you again. God bless you for coming again. I've enjoyed being in this area so far. Enjoyed being in your homes and traveling from north to south and seeing the different families at your homes. I've enjoyed it. 2 Timothy 4. Says, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. This is Paul speaking. I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Shortly after he wrote this, Paul was beheaded just outside of Rome. Do you notice the feeling in what he's writing, the confidence and the resignation in the tone of what he's writing. He says, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but to all them that love his appearing. He knew he was going to die, and he was not afraid to face death. 2 Corinthians 11 lists some of the things that Paul suffered for the sake of Christ. And if you think you've been through some rough things in life, I think I know, I don't know you well, but I know you well enough that you don't come close. It says five times he was whipped, three times beaten with rods, stoned once, shipwrecked three times, adrift at sea for a day and a night. So what kept him going through all of this? I was pondering now, what kept him going? He didn't have to do this. He could have just said, I'm going to stay home and make tents this year. I am not going to go out and face these possibilities. I'm not going to stick my neck out any further than is comfortable for me. What kept him going? What kept him faithful to his cause as he went through all of this? As I was meditating on that, my mind was drawn to the verse in 2 Timothy 1, and it's a familiar verse, but listen, I think this is the reason he could stay faithful. 2 Timothy one twelve says, For the which cause I also suffer these things, nevertheless I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. He was not ashamed, and he knew who he believed, And he was persuaded. Can you say that tonight? That you know who you believe. And you're persuaded that God is able to keep you. Tonight I'd like to speak about assurance of salvation. And I realize there's two great dangers in speaking about this. One is I don't in any way want to raise doubts in anybody's mind. If you are right with the Lord, I don't want to raise doubts in your mind. The other danger is I don't want to give you false confidence if you are not right with the Lord. I don't want you to be to gloss something over and think you are okay. The bottom line and the foundation of which this entire message rests on is that salvation must be a reality and a vital... It must be your life. That's the foundation of what. whatever else is said tonight. That is the, the basis. Salvation has to be a reality in your life, or it isn't. It isn't even salvation. It's easy for, for me, and I assume you, to think of our salvation as a set of beliefs... That we shape around our life. I have my life that I live. I have my job, my family, my the things I do. And that's good to have these things. But it's easy to put salvation as something that you shape around. A set of belief that you shape around your life and the things you do. That's not what salvation is. Salvation needs to be a reality. But our life needs to be shaped around our salvation. Do you see the difference? One is you're shaping your life around your salvation. The other is you're shaping salvation around your life. And the salvation in your life has to be the core of everything you are. Everything you do. Assurance of salvation, I am coming to realize, is not something that just young people struggle with. It isn't. I know of Mennonite bishops that have had struggles with this, pondered it. So don't think that it's just a young people's problem. The devil can attack the mind of anyone, young or old, without, with doubts about their salvation. Have you ever noticed at an airport, at the gate where you board the plane, there's often two types of people there. There's people that buy a ticket and have a seat reserved on the plane. And there are people who maybe have gotten bumped from another flight or something and they are there on standby. Not They can get on if there's room on the plane. Did you ever notice the behavior of these two different groups of people? The people that have a seat reserved on the plane can sit sit in their chair calmly, comfortable, confident, just waiting for the boarding time. They have a spot, and they're good with that. The people who are on standby are pacing up in front of the attendance desk there, and they are standing in a line, and they are asking over and over and over, if there are openings, if if anybody got, if there's room, looking for somebody to answer this question, and they are not at ease. They are not comfortable, they are not calm, because they don't know if they're getting on or not. So my question to you tonight is, do you have a seat reserved, or are you on standby? Is your ticket confirmed or are you on standby? There's three main parts to assurance that I'd like to look at tonight. First, and probably most importantly, is the fact of our salvation. Secondly, is the faith of our salvation, and thirdly, is the feeling of our salvation. Fact, faith, and feeling. First of all, the facts of our assurance of Before we can think about assurance that we can know that we are saved, we need to first of all realize that there is something to be saved from. Sin is a sure thing. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 20 says, For there is not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. Nobody. Nobody. Romans 3:23 for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Sin is sure. Dr. Nabil Qureshi describes why sin is so devastating. He says God is holy. Or God is set apart and within that holiness God is life, his love, his goodness, his joy, his peace, and his purpose. That's within his holiness, that's all the things that God is. And when you sin, you are intentionally removing yourself from that. And now we think that's bad, but what's, what's devastating about sin, what's frightening about sin, is when we sin, we intentionally remove ourselves from that. Did you know you are helpless to come back to that? There is nothing you can do to come back to being saved. John 6, 44 says, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up in the last day. We cannot come unless the Father draws us. Why are we throwing, why would we even consider throwing that away? If you find yourself separated from God, and you have that knowledge that you are not right with God, and you want to get right with God, praise the Lord because that means he is drawing you he is pulling you and he has not forgotten you the father which has sent me or Jesus is drawing you that's the only way sin is sure sin is separation from God sin sin brings spiritual death which leads to eternal death and sin is not something that we learn we learn We're all born like this. And as we reach the age of accountability, and that is not a number, as we reach that age or that point in life, we begin to feel that lostness and the the desperate plight that we are in. We feel the need of a Savior. And that is the Father drawing us. It's the Father reaching down and saying, I'm inviting you. To come. Sin is sure. The other thing that is sure is death. Death is sure. Romans 6.23 For the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Wherever there is sin there is death. Spiritual death and separation from God. So sin is sure, death is sure and hell is sure. Psalm 917 says, The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. Life is full of choices and we have two choices of where we're going to spend eternity. Not making a choice is making a choice. You have two choices. There are no second chances. And this is not the most aesthetically pleasing way to put this, but... What it all boils down to that is that the reality is that everyone who is not right with God is going to hell. There are probably gentler ways to say that, but that's what it is. So the facts are sin is sure, death is sure, hell is sure. But to me, the best fact of our assurance is there is a remedy. There's a remedy for this desolate picture that I've painted. There is a remedy, and we can be saved from a Christless eternity. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5. To me, this is one of the most beautiful pictures and beautiful examples of salvation and that remedy. Romans 5. Begin reading at verse 6. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from from wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Now jump down to verse 18. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one the free gift came upon all men to justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abound and grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the remedy. Throughout this passage, it mentions being justified or justification. What that means is we are made perfect in the sight of God. We are made righteous and perfect in the sight of God. Most, in verse 7, it explains how most people would not willingly go and die for somebody else. It says, you might you you might die for an extremely good person or an important person. You might give your life for that, and that makes sense to us. But here's what doesn't logically make sense: it says Jesus died for us while we were sinners. We weren't even close to being a good person, and Jesus died for us. He lowered himself in obedience to the Father, and came to Earth to die for our sins and what amazes me think about this what amazes me about this is he came and he it would make sense for him to die for our sins if he knew that even the majority of mankind would accept him and live wholeheartedly for him that would make sense but he knew he knew we the majority of mankind the vast majority of mankind would turn their back on him and want nothing to do with him and live their own way he knew that And he still, he still came and he still died for our sins, even though the few that would accept him, like you and I, disappoint him over and over and over again. He still did that. That amazes me. Logically, it makes no sense. Jesus paid the price that was necessary to save us from eternal hell and he offers it to us as a gift it's up to us whether or not we accept that or not. And now here's the the beautiful thing about it is for those of you who have accepted the gift of salvation, you do not need to wait until judgment day to know if you are saved or not. You do not need to wait. In fact, you can't wait. You need to know. You're going to be a paralyzed Christian if you don't know if you are saved or not. 1 John 5.13 says, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, and that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Turn to that verse. The wording in there is a little bit tricky. 1 John 5.13 These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. When I read that, I had to read it several times because he already said that. Why does he say it again at the end? first part makes sense. These things have I written unto you. He's written this letter. That believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life. It makes sense up to that point. And that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. It already said that at the beginning. What it means is that you may continue to believe on the name of the Son of God. So two reasons he wrote it. Number one, that you can know. You can know. You need to know. It's not. It doesn't need to be a mystery. You can know. And secondly, that you would continue to believe on Jesus. So the facts of our salvation are this. Sin, death, and hell are sure. The second thing is the remedy is just as sure. There is a way. There is one way. And then, thirdly, we can know if we have accepted that remedy into our life. We can know that. The faith of our assurance. The Bible contains many promises and evidences that show us without any doubt that we are or are not saved. There was once a young Christian worker leading another young man to Christ. And he was close. He was close. He, he was ready ready to believe ready to become a Christian ready to give his life to Christ but he wasn't quite there he kept saying he kept replying he said I can't believe I just can't believe who or what could he not believe and what it boils down to is we're not believing God if that's what we're saying we're not believing God it's masked under the, the guise of not believing the simplicity of the message, maybe. It is a simple message. It's a gift. Accept it. it. It seems too simple. It seems like we should have to do something. But in Hebrews, Hebrews six eighteen says it's impossible for God to lie. So what God says is true. There's a children's song. Maybe some of you know it. It says, Faith is just believing what God says He will do. And that's what it is. That's the simplicity of the Christian faith. Faith is believing what God says He will do. Believing the promises of God. Now, I said at the beginning that there are many evidences and, and uh, things that we can know that we're saved. I'm going to list a few of them here. John 5.24 I'm not going to read the whole verse I've got six or seven here John 5.24 says If we hear God's word and believe in God If we hear his word and we believe in him John 8.31 says If we continue in his word we can know Romans eight verse one says If we walk not after the flesh but after the spirit we can know 1 John two three and four, if we keep his commandments, we can know. First John two fifteen, if we don't love the world or the things of the world, we can know. First John three fourteen, if we love the brotherhood. There's two dangers that we face when trying to understand this assurance of our salvation. And they're closely related. And there's a ditch on either side that is easy to fall into. The first one is this. We look at these promises of God. We look at the promises of our, of our assurance that we can know it. We, we look at it and we say, I've confessed Jesus. I'm walking after the Spirit. I'm following his commandments. I don't love the things of the world. I sin occasionally, just like everyone else. But Jesus has died for me. He's covered it all. Let's live on. Christ has saved me. I'm safe in Him. We live that way and we brush off any conviction or any convicting thought so that we can avoid the consequences of sin, maybe, or the discomfort of repentance. Although God can keep us from falling, and although we are secure in Christ, we have our part to do in our salvation, in staying where we are safe. Hebrews 3.12 tells us we are capable, it says, of departing from the living God. We can do that. It's not a once saved, always saved. We can depart from the living God. It would be easier if we would accept Christ and be saved And then we're good to go. We are saved. We have salvation. And there are those that believe that way, but that is not the way it is. We are capable of departing from the living God. Jude warns us that God saved his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed them that believed not.
1: They were saved
0: out of Egypt, but they didn't believe anymore, so God destroyed them. There's a parallel to that in our Christian life. We can be saved, but if we don't believe anymore, and there's two kinds of belief. There's a belief, a head knowledge belief, where we say, I believe it. And then there's the kind of belief where you need to actually live it, where it's going to touch your life, and that's where the test of true belief comes in. There's no security of salvation in willful sin and disobedience. And when we think of willful sin, those are powerful words, willful sin. And we think of something big. We think of a big, big sin. And again, we measure the size of a sin usually by its consequences. I'm not sure God does that. And I'm amazed and sobered at some of the things that God lists as sin. Some of the things he hates. I'm going to read some of these and listen to them. Some of them aren't even close to what we would, we would stay away from. But some of them, if we're truly honest, we get pretty close to. Now the works of the flesh are manifest which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. I like where he puts and such like on the end. I think what that means is, in case I missed anything, it's in that phrase, and such like. He's got three verses of the list, and then he says, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I've told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Shall not inherit the kingdom of God. There's one other option. Turn with me to Colossians chapter one, verse twenty one Colossians one, twenty one through twenty three says, And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight, if ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. Did you catch that? In verse 22, in the first part of verse 23, it says, in the body of flesh through death, to present you holy and unblameable, unreprovable in his sight. That's what he wants to do, to present you holy, unblameable, and unreprovable. And then the condition is, if ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard. So, we are only unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. We are only made perfect or justified in the sight of God. We are only saved if we continue in the faith. Now, hear me carefully here. That does not mean that every time a child of God sins, he loses his salvation. I say that carefully. But that does not mean every time the child of God sins, he loses his salvation. 1 John 3, 9. This verse is important. It says, Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. For his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Another translation puts it this way it says, Those who have been born into God's family do not make a practice of sinning because God's life is in them. So they can't keep on sinning because they are children of God. When we, as children of God, sin, and that awareness is brought to us, and we make it right, we are clear before God. It doesn't mean that we have lost our salvation. We we lose our salvation when we sin willfully and refuse to repent. you see the difference? When you get the awareness, when the Holy Spirit touches your heart and you take action on that conviction and you make it right, you are, you're saved, you're fine, you're, open, you're good with God, but... If you willfully sin and refuse to repent, you live in sin, refuse to repent, that is when you are lost. This brings us to the second danger, the second ditch that we can fall into. And that is the problem of the child of God doubting or questioning his salvation. The question of what if, what if, what if. And these are questions that I have struggled with. Growing up in my younger years I struggled with this and it's real. So if you struggle with this don't don't be ashamed. It's a it's real. This this ditch can bring just as much bondage as the name it and claim it I'm safe gospel we just talked about. There are times when we're plagued with questions like this: What if my prayer, when I accepted Christ into my heart, what if my prayer wasn't right? What if it wasn't? What if I said something wrong? If it wasn't right, or what if I missed a step in there and, and Jesus isn't with me? And this this is the one that that was real to me. This question here. I don't remember the exact date and time and place that I gave my heart to the Lord. That was one I struggled with. I cannot point back this place, this time, and this right here, right then is when I gave my heart to the Lord. I can't I can't do that. And that I struggled with that. Does that mean I'm not saved? I can say without a doubt tonight that doesn't mean that to me. There are indications in the life of a Christian that we looked at earlier that can be proof that you are saved. I believe without a doubt that I am tonight. But these are real questions. The first thing, if you struggle with this, the first thing you need to realize is salvation is a gift. There is nothing you can do to earn it. Nothing. It's a gift. Nothing on your merit will earn you Salvation. What if God told Noah when he was building the ark? If God told Noah, he said, When the ark is built, I want you to take big spikes and I want you to pound these spikes into the side of the ark, and then I'm going to send the water and the flood. And what I want you to do is you and your family, you hang on to those spikes as tight as you can, and uh, I'll see you after the flood. What if he would have done that? Would there have been any way they could have hung on to those spikes to earn their salvation? Absolutely not. But that's what we do when we put these doubts in our mind. We try to make it as though God is giving us something that we have to do to earn our salvation. It was as simple as this. He said, you build the ark, I'll provide for you. you go into the ark, I'll shut the door and you're saved. It's a gift. Very different than trying to hold on by our own effort. The worry and doubt the what if questions are part of a fear that will hinder and paralyze a christian and i've been there during the first part of the construction of the golden gate bridge there was no safety devices used at all 23 men fell from the construction of the bridge to their deaths For the last half of the project, they decided to build the world's largest safety net. It cost $100,000. And now the workmen could build without fear. And I find it interesting. The The first half of the building, there was no safety. 23 men fell and died. They were killed. The second half, they had this big, the world's biggest safety net underneath. Only 10 men fell. And they were saved by the net. And the work increased by 25%. Do you see the parallel between that and our assurance of salvation? The, the paralyzing fear that we can have is going to slow our work down. But if we can know, and we can, not if, we can know that we have eternal life. Our assurance of salvation is based on the truth of God's word, the facts, our faith of salvation is based on the fact of God's word, not on how we feel about it. And that brings me to my third point, the feelings of assurance. I talked on Monday night a little bit in First Kings 19 about Elijah, being discouraged. He had been, he was found himself out in the wilderness after the the victory at Mount Carmel. And now he was discouraged. He was in the wilderness. He was ready to give up. His feelings were running very low. Notice the word feelings. His feelings were running very low. He had changed his perspective because of his feelings, but God had not changed. God had not moved. The facts were still the same. But his feelings had changed. So imagine, imagine I have a fence here. This is a fence. We've got fact, faith, and feeling. They're walking along the fence, okay? If our faith keeps our eyes on the facts of our salvation, we'll be fine. But if our faith turns around to look and see if feelings are following along behind as they should be, our faith is going to fall right off the fence because our our feelings are fickle. They're affected by so many things in life. They're affected by the weather. How can we trust that to know if we're saved or not? If we keep our faith focused on the facts, and the facts are here, plainly, we can know. The facts are that Christ has paid the price for my salvation. The facts are that I have accepted it. The facts are that I have surrendered my life to his lordship, the fact are that I am growing in a relationship with him, the fact are that I am displaying the fruit of the Spirit. Those that list right there is what helped me overcome that that what if question I was facing. When I when I didn't realize or I couldn't remember, I I can't point to a certain time and place when I was saved. But I know that Christ paid the price for me. I know that I've accepted it. I know that I'm living in surrender to his life to his lordship. I know that I'm trying to grow in my relationship with him and I trust I'm displaying the fruits of the spirit. Those are the facts. And the feelings are when I turn around and look at the feelings that, that, that puts those doubts in me. When you're saved or when you accept Christ into your life, there are feelings and emotions that go with that and that's good. That's fine. But you you go outside and the sky was never bluer and the grass was never greener and just you feel like you could fly. That's the same feeling you get when you repent and confess that newness and that that revival that God brings to your heart and that those are the feelings that go along with it. But we cannot base Our assurance strictly on those feelings or the lack of them in our life. I'd like to close with a few things that I am thankful for tonight. I'm thankful that the promises of God's Word are sure. I'm thankful the promises of God are clear. I'm thankful that we can know what is expected of us. I'm thankful that we can know when we are not right with God and then right on the heels of that, I'm thankful that we can know how to get right with God. I'm thankful for His Holy Spirit that it can prompt and convict us, guide us into all truth. Tonight, if you don't know if you are saved, you can know. It's miserable not being sure. Maybe there's some area in your life that you, that you know is keeping you from having that assurance. And it's not something we can risk not taking care of. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may continue to believe on the name of the Son of God. I encourage you tonight, if you don't know, Young people, if you don't know that you are saved, find somebody and get it cleared up, because it's miserable not knowing. We can all know if we are saved.